Greetings, in the name of our Lord Jesus, so I think of this song, Palm Sunday, this is Palm Sunday, how the Lord Jesus on the Sunday, the first day of the week, the week that he was crucified, he came into Jerusalem knowing, knowing where he was going and what he was doing and what would happen to him. But his face was set like a flint. He was going to go through. And uh, the Lord Jesus, as our forerunner, as our example, as our teacher, as our Lord, he is our example. We will move forward, seeking to continue on in God's will with our face set like a flint. There is um, there is a night coming, like it did for that John Harper, but there was joy in the morning. There was night coming for the Lord Jesus. There was a hardship to go through. But he stayed on course, and he came out the other side. What a blessing. I actually do not have... A message on Palm Sunday this morning. I think Myron, Betty, I don't know when you had about the Song of Degrees. Was that on Palm Sunday? Okay, I think so. Never forgot that. But I don't have a message on Palm Sunday this morning. I know, I think it was Frank Reed that said about different events and things, and I can't get all together, but he said prayer meetings. We have prayer meetings. He said, isn't every meeting a prayer meeting? So why don't we stand for a word of prayer? Let's pray. Yes, Lord, you are our God. We are grateful to you. You have led the way. You have charted the course. You have made the path. Lord, the death and the burial and the resurrection that you exhibited not only won our salvation and secured it and secured it for eternity and made the way to the Father, but Lord is also an example of our own lives here on earth. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done. We pray, Lord, this morning. Bless us this morning with your presence, Lord. Bless us, Lord, with alert minds. Bless us, Lord, with the uh, engrafting of your word in our hearts. And Lord, speak to us and guide us and lead us. Prepare us, Lord, for the work you have ahead. Lord, we think of that needle that you have given to each one of us. Each one of us has a needle. And Lord, help us to discover and to find it and to fulfill your purpose for us. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> The title of the message that I have as I'm continuing on with uh, the series there is Giving Light in the Darkness. Giving Light in the Darkness. You can turn just for a few verses in, in the introduction to Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 and 14. Colossians chapter 1. Very much appreciated the opening message on David and his heart. David, as an Old Testament 
believer, I seem to know the heart of God about as good as any person. He, he, he looked ahead into the New Testament era, and I don't know how to divide all of that exactly. There is a difference, and yet there's overlap. But David understood the heart of God in a way that many did not. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, talking about light and darkness. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet, or has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. He has delivered us from the power, the power of darkness. Did you know that darkness has power? You know, sometimes we, we and, and, and it's in, a, in a one sense, it's right. When we say, well, darkness has no power, all you do is turn the light on, and darkness has to flee. Light is more powerful than darkness. That's true. But don't forget, the scriptures say also that darkness has power. Lest we, lest we understand too lightly the power of darkness, we need to also remember that. <clears throat> you know, there's, I don't know, I guess probably thousands of novels that are written and many of those novels, fiction novels, they have a plot. That's why I don't know some of your scholars can do a better description than I can. But basically, I understand they have a plot. And when you have a plot, you have a, a villain and you have a hero. And you have a good goal that the hero has in mind. And you have a, a villain who wants to disrupt that goal or has another goal in mind. And so you have, so you have this hero, and he has a goal in mind, but there's a lot of obstacles in in achieving that goal. And 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 there's people in his way. And so, you know, I know why people read those books. I mean, you identify with those characters, and you want this good character to win, and then. Why your emotions go down when he's devastated, looked like everything is lost. Oh, and then he finds a way through and comes out and emotions are up there and you know how the plot goes. And of course, in the end, the hero always wins. And you can actually amplify that if you put that thing in a movie, um, dramatize it in that way, you can see it. I don't really recommend reading fiction novels. Well, depending. Let me let me just say it this way. If you can imagine Jesus reading the books you read, then read them. If they are in line with his character and his mission, then continue to read them. But if they aren't, then die to your flesh. And take up the cross and follow Jesus. But what I, the whole point of that was is there is a real life plot. And it consists of good guys and bad guys. It involves hostages 
and power and territory and allegiance. It involves risk and sacrifice and grueling conquest. It has victories and it has defeats. It's the cosmic battle between good and evil, light and darkness, truth and deception, righteousness and sin. There is a real life plot. And there's a prize. What is the prize in this plot? It's people. God made people for himself. God loves people. The devil hates God. He does not love people, but he hates God, and he does not want people to love God because he hates God. He don't want God to prosper. So he gives people that which would keep them, what he thinks will keep them away from God. God is light. The devil is darkness. All his works are darkness. And people... Billions of people are in that darkness. We, every one of us, if you are in the light, you have first found yourself under the power of that darkness. And now that verse, now that verse, for us who have found the light, giving thanks unto the Father which hath qualified us, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has transferred us, translated us, into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. And here's another verse. I'll read First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises or the virtues of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The invitation came to us like it came to that man in that water that night. There's an invitation came to him to God called us. We were the ones in need. And God has the answer. So like after Adam sinned, what did Adam do? He, he hid. He hid in the darkness, basically, what he did. And God came calling and said, Adam, where art thou? It's God that comes calling for us. Matthew, six, uh, Matthew 4, 16 and 17. The people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, Light is sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the call that God gives includes repentance. And that's what we heard this morning. It includes repentance, a clear, decisive change of mind and a change of direction and a change of allegiance. A forsaking of one thing so that you can embrace another. Light in the darkness. So as I continue with that essay by John Koblenz, this morning we'll take a little bit of a turn. The first two points dealt with us. It dealt with 
They were focused on ourselves. <clears throat> the challenges we face. And um, But this morning, we will look at others. But I'm just going to very briefly, over the other first two, the challenge number one was to build strong, committed church communities in an age of individualism and reluctance to commit. We need communities. And I, I, I could, this is really dear to my heart, committed communities. The strength that comes from a community which is God's will rather than an individual believer. There is strength that comes when they are collaborating, encouraging, working together. And the five points that I had that one message was to fellowship together, share together, mix together, think together, and blend together. Then challenge number two was to maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. And one of the main things that I brought up was the word maintain. We largely have a structure in place. I have a co-worker who um, first day he went out with me in a job, um, we got a, we got a, we have a lift gate trailers and we actually got to climb up on the back of the trailer when you don't use the lift gate. You actually got to climb up and there's no handles and it's actually, it's actually a, a acrobatic move. <laughs> and I looked at this fellow, he couldn't get up. He was, he was not real tall, about my height, I believe, but he was overweight, way over 300 pounds, I'm sure. And he couldn't get up. I thought, how is this man ever going to survive? Then he told me, well, his pants were a little too tight. Next time he's going to use more flexible pants, and he got up. But then he told me, as we were going back and forth, he told me that he uh, used to play soccer. And he was very good in playing soccer. In fact, he got a scholarship to go to a college to play soccer. I thought, wow, what you? What happened? And then he told me, he told me this is what happened. He said, when I was in my freshman year in high school, my parents divorced and I got depressed and I just sat around home and drank chocolate milk and watched TV. And there's where he is. And I said, I gained weight and I could never lose it. Now, when I talk about structure that we have in place, we have a lot of problems in our circles. But we do not have that generally. I just want us to appreciate that. We can be critical if we want to, but we can be blessed. We should take what we have and we should build on it. Our home should be Holy Spirit-filled home, not just home where you have a structure, but a Holy Spirit-filled home where there is love and there's joy and there's peace and there's long-suffering. And we should nurture our children and prepare them for a harsh world. So this morning, we are ready for challenge number three, and that is to minister to people around us whose lives have been broken by sin and adverse cultural circumstances. I'm going to read in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and these are familiar verses. It's a prophecy by Paul as he was instructing his son Timothy. But know this, 
that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Let me read that in a paraphrase. It will strike us a little different. Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanders, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust, and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Stay clear of those people. Now, if you are aware of the nation we live in, you would realize God actually can hit it right on the spot. God hit it right on. Don't be naive. Now, it's interesting that he tells us to disassociate ourselves from them. Avoid them. Stay away from them. It matters not if they are liberal or conservative or godless. Don't mess around with them. God said that. Now, if you're like me, you're going to think, well, now, how does this work? We are supposed to be a witness. We're supposed to go out. So, so on the one side, we're be witness. On the other side, God says, stay away from him. Aren't we supposed to be witnesses calling people out of darkness? How are we supposed to do that if we avoid them? If someone is disobedient to their parents, should we just now steer around them? Are we to reject them as a person? Well, I'd like to bring a little balance to that one. It's in First uh, Timothy chapter 6, the other letter that Timothy, that Paul wrote to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 to 5. If any man teach otherwise and consent, consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmising, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. These people have rejected evident truth. They are not just on the road to hell. They are on the highway to hell. They are the, now the devil's pawns. And they are going to do the devil's work. 
during their short lifetimes. And they are evangelistic. They would rather take you and me and our children along with them. Paul says in Ephesians that they have cunning craftiness and they lie in wait to deceive. Do avoid them. There are people we should avoid. So what is the outcome of a society that includes self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, coarse, and that list of people? (laughs) Savage, cynical, ruthless, windbags, addicted to lust. Well, when you have a culture like that, you're going to have lots and lots of People that are called whose lives have been broken by sin and adverse cultural conditions. They are many of the people that we meet. They're not in Central America, but they are, and Africa or Russia. They are here in the USA, in Pennsylvania, in Lebanon, and in Schaeferstown. Broken by sin, not necessarily their own though that as well. But they're broken by the adverse cultural conditions that they grow up in. Many find themselves in despair and hopeless and broken. And here is some of of John Copeland's words. There are crisis needs, chronic needs, emotional needs, and multiplied unhealthy and sinful behaviors. People struggle with depression, suicidal tendencies, neglect, abuse, hyperactivity, eating disorders, self-manipulation, anxiety, panic attacks, and all sorts of personality and behavioral disorders. Has it ever been this bad before? What do you think? These are our People in our nation are our neighbors. People we live among, some we interact with, they see our example. They see our life. They see our attitude. They see what makes us tick. We talk to them. Some of them, we have no idea what they're going through. You know, I think... Because of that list there is one of the reasons I heard this over and over. It's hard to get good employees. This is some of the reasons why. We are not to isolate ourselves from them. They are our mission field. You know, Jesus did that. You know, he met the woman at the well. Five husbands. Well, maybe nothing new under the sun after all. The maniac to possess with the devils raging in the graveyards. The woman caught in adultery. The the outcast, the downtrodden, the vulnerable. That's what Jesus did. He did. Here's another more of John Copeland's words. He said, we generally find ourselves mercifully shielded from many of the sorrows and troubles rampant in general society. 
And because of that, we find it tempting to isolate ourselves, to maintain what we have, and to avoid the messy work of engaging with broken people in society around us. When we are willing to engage, we face the challenges of relationally empty people latching on us like leeches. Undisciplined people wanting the benefits of our more disciplined lives, but resenting the necessary discipline themselves. And people who have gotten themselves into impossibly tangled relationships, wanting us to help them make their mess work. Darkness. Darkness in their past, darkness in their present, and darkness in their future. How will the light of the glorious gospel come to them. Now I'd like to bring out, we looked at the real negative part of society. I'd like to look out a little bit about the other side. There are some people around us that actually look like they have it together. At this time, their life is going well. They are fulfilling their dreams, and they are achieving them. I remember, you know, remember when Paul was a prisoner of Felix, when he was um, captured there in Jerusalem, and then they shipped him to Felix, and Felix was in prison there. And before he went to Rome, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice came to visit Felix. And Felix told them a whole bunch of things about his life. And he said, I have this interesting prisoner here. Um, Paul, his name is, he was captured by Jerusalem. The Jews accused him. And so I, I got him, I got to trial and we're going to decipher this thing. But it wasn't what I expected. Um, they were talking about their religion and, and, and a and Paul was insisting that there was this man, Jesus, that died, but he's, he, he's alive. How did he say that? Uh, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus who Paul assist, insists is alive. And Felix said to uh, Agrippa, said, I was at loss to know what to do with this thing. Um, not, that's not, I'm not paid, let's say like people say, that's not my, in my pay scale. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. And Agrippa was gripped and he said, well, I'd like to hear this man. So the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice, I think it was his sister, came and they had great pomp. And they had the, all the entourage and they had the military tribunals and they had just just the, the majestic of uh, majesty there. And they entered the, the, the hall with the prominent men of the city. King Agrippa and Bernice seemed to have it together, did they not? They were not in despair and hopeless and broken. Life seemed to be going well for them. But was it? Paul didn't think so. After giving his defense and testifying of the resurrection of Jesus, and after Festus burst out with that thing, Oh, Paul, much learning has made you mad. You're crazy. After all that, Paul goes directly to that highly successful man, King Agrippa. He said, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know you believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. 
And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. So when I say this morning that people's lives are broken by sin, I recognize that there are many in this world who would say they're not broken by sin. Life is going well for them. They are pursuing their dreams and goals, and they are enjoying themselves. But like that man that was in the water, he probably was enjoying himself the day before. He was on this great ship, and he was probably had things together, but all of a sudden things were not together. And Paul challenged King Agrippa. You know the prophets. You know them. You know that they talk about a judgment, and you know they talk about a Messiah. And he challenged him as well. And then there's, and we live among those people as well. And then we could add religious people, the religious fraud that Jesus spoke about. And I'll just read a few verses about light and darkness here. He said, the light is in Luke chapter 11, verses 34 and 35. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body is also full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. You're a religious person. Make sure that the light in you is not darkness. Make sure your eye is single. So, many kinds of darkness. But this morning, challenge number three, to minister to people around us whose lives have been broken by sin and adverse cultural circumstances how do we begin it would be interesting to know how you all would answer that challenge here's the challenge how would you minister to the people around us maybe i should ask the question how are you ministering to people around you those who are not christians or not true christians the road from eden has come a long way. The pure image of God has been extensively marred in many people. The worldview, the values, the standards, the behavior, it's all twisted up. And it resides in a social structure that is also messed up. And John Copeland says we are easily overwhelmed. When we consider ministering to people. So, I have two points for that. You can uh, have this Sunday afternoon discussion what you would do or how you do it. But I have two points. The two points are opposites. Some of you, some of us, could shout amen to the one point. Other of us could cheer for the other point. And some of us may not really like the other point. (laughs) But we need both. That's my pronunciation. Hear me, both are needed. Number one, 
Point number one is very simple. Do have compassion. Do have compassion. To minister to people around us whose lives have been broken by sin and adverse cultural circumstances. Do have compassion. And you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 3 to 5. Here is when John the Baptist was had sent some of his disciples to Jesus, and they asked him this question. And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or should we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again these things which thou which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. How do we know if this is the true Messiah? John asked. And the answer that Jesus gave reflects the prophecies of the Old Testament. John was very familiar with those prophecies. Those Old Testament prophecies, what will the Messiah do? When his faith was wavering, and it was, his faith was wavering, all he needed was someone to to remind him how perfectly Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. You know, sometimes we find ourselves where John does as well. Isn't it true? Or should we say, is it true what I've been believing? Is it real? Is this all a, a scam? It is all an illusion. This Christian life, this what I've Gave my life for. Is it real? Things aren't going like I expected. Maybe I was all wrong. Some people have called that the dark night of the soul. John the Baptist had a dark night of the soul there in prison. It's when life's circumstances shake you to the very foundation. And it's not funny. Not funny. As I think of John the Baptist, as he was in that dungeon, he had some dark nights. And he sent he sent those disciples to Jesus, said, Are you really the one? Or is there someone else coming? Was I mistaken all along? All those bold words that he said someone coming after me. Saw the dove coming down from heaven, lighting on, heard the voice from heaven. And now he's doubting. But he got the word. The word of God spoke to him and he got peace. And we do too. When either by ourselves or by the help of other people, the dots connect again. No, we still don't understand what's going on. We understand God again. The dots are connecting and the peace and the joy. Our life circumstances still don't make sense, but God makes sense. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. But the issue here is what did the Lord do? Remember to have, do have compassion. 
blind, lame, lepers, deaf, dead, and poor. These were the people Jesus ministered to. These were the disadvantaged people, people whom others often overlooked, but not Jesus. Everyone is important to Jesus, even the poor, the uneducated, the undisciplined, the disenfranchised, the broken people. We are called to follow Jesus. He is our Lord and Master. He had compassion on the poor. He did not look at them as of lesser value, of a lesser human than the rich. If anything, it was the opposite. But actually not. <laughs> the reason we would say the opposite is because many times the poor responded better to the gospel than the rich. And remember that in this case, there was not much of a middle class. Either you were rich or you were poor. And there wasn't much of a middle class. So generally, the response from the poor was better than from the rich. And James bears that out. James bears a tendency that we have. And I like to read that. In James chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And as you're turning there, I, I guess I probably have to make a disclaimer as we are ministering to the poor, I'm again giving structure and not the details, at least not this morning. I don't know if there will be details coming in other message or not. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. I'd like to read this familiar passage concerning having compassion on the poor. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and call you before the judgment seats. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. The poor. But don't disdain the rich either. <laughs> that is implied and you talk about not respecting persons. Our tendency is usually to look down on poor people who don't manage well or who uh, have various issues and problems that we perceive anyhow that they have. But interestingly enough, today there is a large swath of society that disdains the rich. It is despising of the rich. And that's a topic of itself, which I'm not going to go down that rapid trail. 
But just to say that it exists, and it's also sinful to disdain the rich. Well, since John Copeland says it better than I will, and I can, I will quote him as far as ministering to the poor. Jesus said he would build his church. As we look at Jesus' own ministry, we find encouragement that he didn't try to change broken systems or to create perfect social circumstances. He ministered to people one at a time. He engaged with them, spoke words of truth and healing, refused to let people simply use him for their selfish purposes, called them from their selfishness into the good ways of God, and walked with those who were willing. We have countless opportunities to do the same, he keeps on saying. The church is the body of Jesus, and where the body is willing to follow the head, Jesus has promised to be in our midst, doing what we cannot do, bringing his life and light into situations beyond hope. We don't have to solve all our neighbor's problems. We don't have to reconcile all its strange relationships. But we can love, we can listen, We can care with words and actions charged with the presence of Jesus. The possibilities of showing Christ's love in a broken world are endless. And that is a vision I would have for us as a congregation at Oasis. It is us, Jesus' body on earth, doing what he himself would do if he were here. So do have compassion. Second point is don't compromise. You know, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and seemed to sincerely want eternal life at one time. Remember that? After some interaction, Jesus said, it's in Mark 10, Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up thy cross, and follow me. And he, the young young man, was sad at this saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus left him go. He didn't run after him. He didn't change the conditions. He didn't try to manipulate things. The invitation is for whoever will. The condition is clear and a decision needs to be made. But when the wrong decision is made, Jesus did not run after him with any change of conditions. This point is sometimes harder than ministering to the poor. Just as there are a large swath of so-called Christians who ignore the poor, so there is just as large a swath of Christians who compromise in various ways to make it easier for the seeker. Some names that describe this phenomenon are contextualization, being relevant, bridging the gap, being all things for all people, accommodation. But 
many times it's just subtle or not so subtle ways of compromise. We are so different. Our culture is so different. Our worldview is different. Our experiences are different. Our homes are different. Our clothes are different. Our speech is different. Very different. The gap is huge. Surely we cannot expect a convert to adopt our ways. So we tend to do one of two things. Either we expect less of them than ourselves, or we change to meet them somewhere in the middle. And we really think it is the will of God. We are following Jesus, we think, when we are doing that. And this is a huge topic, and I cannot do justice to address all of it, but I will make some observations. One observation, of course, right off the top. Jesus never compromised. <laughs> he didn't. But I recently read an article from a sociological perspective. So you have to recognize it's from a sociological perspective. People look at society, and look at trends, and they make decisions. And so that's from that perspective. And the title was The Demise of the Mainliners, Mainline Churches. The question was asked, why are the conservative churches growing and the liberal churches dying? The observation was made, this, this article was written because in seven years' time, from 2007 to 2014, the mainline churches lost 25% of their members in seven years. All the churches that are in this town are mainline churches. The Lutheran Church, United Methodist Church, and United Church in Christ are all mainline churches. Those are the denominations that have lost 25% in seven years' time as a whole. Why are they dying? There are many reasons. The one I'm going to bring out is this. These denominations have historically adapted to the culture. They have, uh, they have emphasized accommodation to the culture. They have adapted to the times. They were not distinctive from the larger culture, and it did not demand as much from their members. And in time, they became irrelevant. Their acceptance of a more secularized priority system simply hasn't worked. They became so much like the larger society that individuals stopped seeing any real reason why they should attend those churches and organizations. Conservative churches stood their ground on moral and social issues. As the culture shifted, they became more distinctive and countercultural. They made demands on their members. They stood for truth and refused to move. And in doing so, they became relevant to those searching hearts who were looking for something real. There was an article that I read some years ago that I looked and looked, but I could not find it. I saw it in a book, and I think maybe it's in the library at Harmony. I'm not sure. It was in the, it was in the back end of a, of a historical book of some kind where it talked about the Mennonite eclipse. 
I don't know if you know it, but there are millions of Mennonites across the world. In fact, there are probably more Mennonites in Africa than there are in the United States. Maybe you didn't know that. But, you know, there was um, the Mennonite church has sent missionaries to Africa for decades and decades, and there's lots of churches established. And this, this was, of course, from uh, someone from the liberal perspective of the Mennonite church. And this article was specifically about an uncomfortable truth. That he said, we, and when he was saying we Mennonites, he was talking about they as a group, the liberal ones. It's an uncomfortable truth. He said, the trend is, and probably has passed by now because it was a number of years ago. The trend is that at some point, the conservatives are going to outnumber the main lines. Because the, 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 the graphs were going opposite. said, for all the emissions and all the efforts and everything they've done, he said, the conservatives have been more successful in numbers than, than we real Mennonites. I, 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 would have, I would have liked to read a little bit of it, but I couldn't find it. <clears throat> we don't go for numbers. That's not our goal. Jesus did say, that there will be few that are saved. He said to take the narrow road. And there's not many that will find it. He said something about, uh, about that little flock. Become, not what that, about the little flock. I can't think of the words, but anyhow. He, he, he cares about the small flocks. And we're not going for numbers. We go for faithfulness to the Lord. But evidence is clear over and over. Compromise always brings sickness and death. Even while it sounds so good and loving and compassionate. Conservatives, making demands on the members of our churches should not be avoided as long as those demands are in keeping with our values. This does not mean we can demand anything from the members of our churches, but it does mean that we should feel the freedom to make demands when necessary. Compassion is a virtue, but compassion can be a vice when it is not balanced with other virtues. Compassion comes from that maternal instinct And someone who has an excess of compassion will try to make it easier for a struggling one. Someone who has an excess of compassion will help a butterfly out of a cocoon and will destroy it. Conscientiousness is a much cooler virtue that is concerned about structure for a much longer period of time. Conscientiousness is a form of compassion. Because it demands things now for the benefit of the future. Conscientious people do not care so much how you feel. Just go and do it. They will whip you into shape. And now you know why both are needed. (laughs) Dale Heisey said a statement that staggered me, and it actually has a set in the uh, Ministers Discipleship for Ministers Conference in 2017, and it's on the Burn Christian Fellowship. He had, um, had a 
four messages on structure and life, life and structure. I recommend, brothers, I recommend everyone to listen to them. But he made a statement that staggered me. He said, you are not fit to be a pastor if you only look down the road 20 years. 20 years, that's a long time. 20 years is gone in a blink. You are not fit to be a pastor if you only look down the road 20 years. You must see down the road to the marriages of the grandchildren of the young families, the marriages of the grandchildren of the young families in your fellowship. You know, under that, under that condition, I'm not fit to be a pastor. Because I thought 20 years was about, that's about, that's about what I had. But I intend to become fit to be a pastor. Of course, we don't look at men to to, uh, verify us, but it's a thought. And the thought is, you must see down the road. You must see trends. You must see things, and you need to make decisions today for 20, 30, 40, and 50 years down the road. You need to make the decision today for that time. So, we are looking at accommodations to the poor and the hurting and the needy in our society. We reach out to them. We want to help them. We want to give them the gospel. But if we try to make it easy for them, If we compromise, we will destroy the very structure that enabled us to reach out in the first place. Compromise eats away at the structure like termites, unseen at first, but devastating in the end. It is harder to integrate seekers into a disciplined body of believers than it is to compromise. It requires more, not only of them, but also of us. It requires more of us to integrate new believers into a disciplined body. We need to spend more time. We must deal with our own inconsistencies and our own hypocrisies if we bring them in and bring them close. Because they will see that. We need to have real spiritual power and life with God ourselves. But we must have that if we will be blessed at our grandchildren's weddings. The compromiser is one who convinces himself that he is saving the church where in reality he is killing it. He has a very short view, like Hezekiah, who was a good king but didn't seem to care much about the next generation. You know, I feel very strongly about this. The gospel way lies somewhere between the errors and the baggage of old orderism and Mennonite liberalism or any kind of liberalism. But the best answer to all these problems is not so much criticism as it is to demonstrating demonstrating a radical way of discipleship 
of selflessness ourselves. First as an individual person, then as families, and then as a congregation. The answer, I'm going to repeat that in my own words if I can, the answer to the problems of baggage of old order on one side and liberalism on the other side is not to criticize them. That's not the answer. The answer is to be truly a sold-out believer in the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. That's a radical way of discipleship. Talk is cheap. Shouting hallelujah is easy. Godly behavior is not. Nor suffering for godliness. One of the reasons the Anabaptists mushroomed at the beginning is because of the glorious dying the public witnessed. People were strongly attached to a faith worth dying for. In their heart of hearts, people today are looking for a cause worthy of dedicating their lives to. Something bigger than themselves, something authentic. They are often looking for something counter-cultural. Getting people to my church matters less than people seeing Christ living in me. In our dark world, the Christ life shines brightly wherever it actually exists. And the world is hungry for authenticity, not religious talk and compromise. This past um, week, we went out for supper with someone, and he gave me a list of three oxymorons. I thought I'd like to read them. An oxymoron is something that, that doesn't fit together. And I thought it would fit in right here. Oxymoron number one. America lights its Hollywood icons, Playboy magazine, and the latest in unheard of provocative fashion designs, but would like to maintain its morality. Oxymoron number two. American toy stores continue to sell violent video games, toy machine guns, and mystical movies portraying an unreal society. But they also would like to raise a generation of responsible young adults. Oxymoron number three. The Anabaptist community embraces the doctrines of Luther, Swingley, Calvin, and evangelicalism, but is convinced it needs to bring godly conviction to the hearts of its children. And the two don't go together. In First uh, Timothy, I'm going to read a few verses that Paul gave to Timothy. Verses chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example to the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 
Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyselves wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So that is Paul gave Timothy. He said, you stand firm. First of all, you be the person you should be. And then you insist on, on, and, and as you do that, you will save not only yourself, but those that hear thee. As we think about don't compromise, as I have one other, this is something that I read when I was out in Indiana at the meetings and I had a, a few messages I read. I read this and I thought it's, it's fitting for right now. Somebody in a blog had some questions about someone with a, with a very good desire to reach out to the people in our society, but was questioning the huge gap between us and was wondering maybe we will need to make some adjustments. Maybe maybe we are holding certain things too highly and maybe we need to adapt. Maybe we need to become more relevant. And here's a response by a man that most of you probably know, but I won't identify him now. So here to answer. Interesting. We heard the same reasoning 45 years ago. The big cry then was relevancy. The result of that push for relevancy is the Mennonite Church USA. At that time, the people who understood looked against at the old order smiled and knew that they would soon dry up and blow away. Forty-five years later, the tables are turned, and it's the old orders who are increasing in number, while the relevant churches are declining in numbers. The conservative Anabaptists are having more impact on the culture than what meets the public eye or gets acknowledged. The same thing happened when the Anabaptist movement first began, when people are wholeheartedly obedient to the Christ in a love-faith relationship with him, He uses them to do his non-spectacular but significant work in the world. 500 years ago, the radically obedient Anabaptists pioneered the idea of separation of church and state, and thus, with the input of others in subsequent years, changed the entire course of Western history. Talk about relevancy. They were so relevant that they were ahead of their times. But they didn't seek out to be relevant. They set out to be obedient to Christ, and he used them to do significant work in the world. The same is true today. Much could be said at this juncture. However, behind the cry of relevancy is the cry for wholehearted worldliness, never acknowledged, of course. Since I have seen this scenario before, my heart goes out to the ignorance behind the cry. People supposedly mean well. The talk sounds okay, but death follows closely behind. It does not require a rocket scientist to see through this matter. A worldview of evangelical theology naturally results in this kind of thinking. 
Why have Anabaptist churches lost their own New Testament worldview to adopt a non-relevant worldview? The evangelicals have caught many Anabaptists who should know better. The flesh-accommodating theology appeals to the flesh. Thus, many Anabaptists have bought into this kind of Gnosticism that is deadly while at the same time feeling good about the sound theology that they have borrowed from the evangelicals. I hate to watch another generation end up being losers, but if we insist on it, God will allow us to do our own thing while we pat each other on the back. Ultimately, he chooses the circumstances or the consequences. So the challenge for us today, as we minister to people around us whose lives have been broken by sin and adverse cultural conditions, is do have compassion on them. And don't compromise. That's my message this morning, the Lord's message for us this morning. May God bless you.